My name is Maggie Freeling. I'm a journalist and producer, and this is Unjust and Unsolved, a podcast about people who I believe are wrongfully incarcerated for crimes that are actually unsolved. You've surely heard stories like these on the news, but the thing is, the ones you've heard about barely scratch the surface. The Innocence Project gives a conservative estimate that about 20,000 innocent people are currently locked away in U.S. prisons. After reading some of these stories, I felt compelled to do something. So I sent 20 letters to people who are locked up despite evidence pointing away from them. Some responded through mail, some emailed, and some called me on contraband cell phones. But all wanted their stories to be heard. So I left my public radio job and decided to do just that. In each episode, I speak with those people, their loved ones, supporters, and lawyers, to shed light on how they wound up incarcerated for decades, despite the evidence, and how that means the crimes they were convicted of are still unsolved. This week, I'm telling the story of Brandon Spencer. On Halloween night 2012, 19-year-old Brandon and his girlfriend were on the University of Southern California campus in Los Angeles, attending a Halloween party. Where an estimated 400 people came to enjoy the night's festivities. That is, until gunshots rung out. And it was pandemonium. Everyone scattered, ducked, and hid. There was screaming. It was chaos. Brandon Spencer also ran, but was stopped in a campus parking lot half a mile away and picked up by the LAPD for questioning. Just days later, Brandon was charged with four counts of attempted murder. And four people are being treated for wounds from a shooting outside a Halloween party. Yeah, that happened at the University of Southern California. The prosecutor chalked the shooting up to a gang retaliation between the Bloods and Crips. But Brandon says he was not in a gang. He was a smart kid from a well-to-do, supportive family with a good job getting ready to enter an EMT program. But the jury bought the prosecution's theory that Brandon was a hardcore gangbanger. 21-year-old Brandon Spencer of Inglewood bangs his head as a judge sentences him to 40 years to life. But years later, the star witness recanted. And without his testimony, there is no evidence linking Brandon to the shooting. So why is Brandon still in prison? And if he's innocent, why was he railroaded? We'll get to that after this. When you start looking at possible wrongful conviction cases, you realize you can find them everywhere. There are so many. And I came across Brandon's on Instagram. His cousin reached out to me, and I get a ton of people who reach out to cover cases, but Brandon's stood out. And what particularly stuck out to me was how young Brandon is. Brandon is 28, and his case was fairly recent. We're not talking the 80s, 90s, or early 2000s. This was 2012, just nine years ago. Modern technology, tons of news reports and evidence, I thought surely the courts got it right. But when I started digging, there actually was no evidence against Brandon. And that piqued my interest instantly. What also grabbed me was an LA Weekly article with the title, 40-year price for four shots that killed no one. That is basically a life sentence. And even if Brandon did commit the shooting for not killing anyone 
it's incredibly severe. Brandon will be in his 60s by the time he is eligible for parole, an entire life thrown away. So I was also intrigued. Why the harsh sentence? And the deeper I dug, the stranger things got. To start, there are no case files I can use to report Brandon's story like I usually do. His original trial attorney destroyed them. We don't have police reports, witness statements, nothing. The only thing his current lawyer was able to get was the court transcripts. This was instantly a red flag. Why would his lawyer destroy the files? There is always a retention period statute for these kinds of things. In California, it's 10 years. So a criminal case file being destroyed, one, is illegal, and two, makes no sense. One of the main people I spoke with to grasp what was going on in Brandon's case was Patty Cardenas. I have been an avid advocate for wrongful convictions now for a couple of years. Patty and I pooled our resources together to try and make sense of what happened to Brandon and where to go from here. Basically, what I want to do is like you and I piece together information from Brandon's case um, and just get it, you know, recorded so we can figure out what the hell is going on. Brandon reached out to me um, last year and after i took a look at his case there was no doubt in my mind that this 19 year old kid was just thrown to the wolves wrongfully convicted of a crime that there was no way that he could have committed patty and i both have done multiple interviews with family friends reporters lawyers and supporters of brandon many of which are not in this episode but we used to corroborate the information brandon was giving us Patty and I also requested from the police department any files we can get, but that's going to take weeks. But with everything we were able to find and the information we gathered, we both agreed. Brandon should not be serving even another day in prison, let alone a 42-life sentence. Brandon Spencer was born November 3rd, 1992 in St. Louis, Missouri. He grew up with three siblings in a well-off upper middle-class household in Inglewood, California. Inglewood, California, the city of champions, the home of SoFi Stadium, or as they say, the eighth wonder of the world. I'm a proud citizen. Inglewood is in southwest L.A. and got the name the city of champions because 1920 to 1925, Inglewood was the fastest growing city in the United States. Inglewood also has a long history of diversity. It integrated in the 60s and 70s, and in 1983, Inglewood elected its first black mayor. But like many cities during those decades, white flight happened. And at the time of Brandon's arrest in 2012, it had become a predominantly Latino and black neighborhood. The white population was only 3%. And of course, we know with the systemic and structural racism that exists in this country, with white flight came poverty and crime. When Brandon was growing up, the violent crime rate in Inglewood was nearly double the U.S. average. In fact, Brandon was born just months after one of the most violent historic events in L.A. and U.S. history the L.A. riots. Parts of Los Angeles were in flames. Neighborhoods erupted with anger. The L.A. riots, sometimes called the 1992 L.A. uprising, was a series of civil disturbances by enraged citizens. This was during a time of major racial tensions in L.A. I feel we have no way of else way to uh, event our frustration out. 
because we're already at the bottom. You know, what else can we do? None but Biden. The riot started after a trial jury acquitted four LAPD officers in the videotaped brutal beating and arrest of Rodney King, a black citizen. Police officers were acquitted of assaulting motorist Lee King. Then beat him, kicked him, and clubbed him, unaware that an amateur photographer was recording the incident on videotape. Thousands of people rioted for days. And in the aftermath, 63 people were killed and thousands injured. Brandon's neighborhood, Inglewood, was one of the ones the riots started in. But despite the neighborhood Brandon grew up in, he had supportive parents with good jobs he could look up to. My mom's a real estate broker, and my dad has his own uh, construction and um, asbestos and abatement removal company. Oh, wow. So you guys did do really well. Yeah. They lived in an upper middle class community in Inglewood, and Brandon's mom says she was the neighborhood watch captain for five years. The family went to church together, and Brandon played soccer and baseball and did martial arts. I get the picture. It was an incredibly wholesome, loving family. But at 12 years old, his parents got divorced, and Brandon took it really hard. My parents had divorced at a young age, so that kind of like had a little impact on my life, you know, had me deter and associate with the wrong people. I can admit that. Entering his teen years, his mom says that Inglewood was still Inglewood and gangs started to approach Brandon for recruitment. Feeling the weight of the divorce, his mom said she worried that Brandon would be susceptible to joining a gang. And so she put him in private school and homeschooled him for a bit and even moved him out of California to Mississippi. But Brandon was drawn back to Inglewood. It's where he grew up. It was home. Brandon explained to me that although he says he was not in a gang, he knew gang members. And some were even his friends. These are the people I grew up with. So, of course, I have to um, know these people. Brandon says that even just leaving his house to go to the store, he encountered gang life. Yeah, exactly. This is where I live. There's gangs there. It's not It's not Disneyland. Then I have to know these guys who go to these corner stores and different little things. And, and you have to know these people to go to the liquor stores, go to the, the stores around there first off so you don't get into any problems. Like, hey man, who was you? You see what I'm saying? And then second, if they know you already, you're able to just slide by. Like, oh, hey man, what's going on? Woo! And then get on. You see what I'm saying? Like, I gotta buy these individuals. You have to know these people. Brandon was specifically dealing with the Bloods and Crips. And most of the friends he had were Bloods. So he had to know who were Crips and who were Bloods to avoid conflict. And despite Brandon and his family saying he was never in a gang, he couldn't avoid the repercussions of growing up around that life and knowing the people who he knew. In the summer of 2012, Brandon went to a party at the Proud Bird Restaurant, an event center near LAX airport. Brandon arrived around 11 p.m. There was an incident, uh, I guess the guy got into it with some guy in the club and just started shooting crazy and hit me, you know? And uh, I was paralyzed for a few months and uh, had lost uh, lost my pulse for like three minutes, but they brought me back. Brandon was shot in his stomach. I had two holes in my stomach, so when I would use the restroom, that, that really hurt. Like, just to pee, it would be like, ooh! You still have a bullet in you? Yeah, it's still in my spine right now. Took the, um chipped a piece of my spine. I don't know what those are actually called again, 
but you know, like, okay, the spine goes down, but those little later rate little things on the side, it chipped that and took its place. So it keeps my spine up. Can you feel it? Uh, sometimes. After the shooting, Brendan started to think about the people he was hanging around with and the life he wanted to have and decided to become a nurse. Yeah, when I got shot, that's what made me do that because I saw how those nurses cared for me. You know, I really went, I was really in pain. Like, whew, I don't think nothing was worse than this, being paralyzed, shot, you know. The shooting focused Brandon, and afterwards, he got on track. I was about to start on the UCLA, the EMT program, because I wasn't going to start, I wasn't going to actually do college until the following year, but I just wanted to get the medical training to prepare me for the RN program I wanted to do after I got shot. Nursing school is, is very hard. You see what I'm saying? I didn't want to just jump into that. At the time of his arrest. I was 19 living my best life. What was your best life? At that time, you know, I had a beautiful girlfriend. I, um, I had a good paying job. You know, I worked different jobs. I was uh, um, pouring concrete. I was making $40 an hour. So that was pretty decent. So, you know, I could take her to the nice things and uh, go to nice movie theaters and get massages during the week and you know go to different states and travel i was i was living a, a cool lifestyle but that would all come to a screeching halt on october 31st 2012 brandon was 2 days away from turning 19 he and his then girlfriend were looking for a halloween party they had tickets to one in Hollywood, but heard there was a shooting that injured three people, and they decided not to go. Brandon says his girlfriend knew of a party on the University of Southern California campus, so they decided to go there. When they arrived, there were a few hundred people outside the ballroom on the center of campus waiting to get into the party. Brandon says they were only there for about five minutes before suddenly gunshots rang out. Everyone screamed, scattered, ducked, and hid. It was chaos. So I I ran. You see what I'm saying? I ran. I've been shot before, so I'm not sitting around trying to figure nothing out. <laughs> what direction? I'm gone. As he was running, Brandon took his shirt off. But I took my shirt off because I was running, and then the shirt is red and white. So I'm like, oh, these dudes might be shooting at any guys who ran them. So let me take this off. He thought the red shirt might be seen as a gang color. Bloods are red, crypts are blue, so he took it off. They say I took it off because I was guilty. The prosecution said that taking off the shirt meant he was trying to hide from the police. But still, with his shirt off, he made it only a half a mile before he was stopped. So police stopped me. Apparently, Brandon matched the description of the shooter. They searched the parking lot for a gun. Don't find a gun. Then they searched his phone. So then they see pictures of me and my phone with gang members. And that was it. They arrested him. The cop who arrested me tells me, well, look, man, if you confess, you know, you're going to make it easier on yourself. I said, confess about what, bro? Confess about what? So I tell you I did it. I'm going home or something? Like, what, is that, is that what, that's the deal? If that's what's going to take me to go home, then I'll say that. But if I'm not going home, I'm not going to be making nothing up about myself, bro. You really considered, like, okay, I'll just say this and I'll go home? Yeah, that's what I'm like. But, I, but I'm smart, so I want to ask this question, too. Like, Maggie, so you're saying if I say this, what, you going to give me $100? Or are you just saying say this and then I'm getting in trouble? Like, I'm let's, let's make this clear. You got to say what you're saying. Like, oh, well, then tell us, man, just tell us you did it. Like, man, just tell us you did it. 
And then we'll talk to the DA. I said, talk to the DA about what, bro? I didn't do nothing. Like, you're confusing me. What is it that you want me to say? Because you can ask my attorney. And then they come in the they come in the little holding tank, ten deep, and it's recorded, roughing me up, talking about man, you want to play these fucking games, you want to be this fucking gangster. I'm like, hold on, bro, what you doing? Hold up, what I do? What I do? I mean, man, come on, stop playing, man. And I'm like, hold on, what's your, so y'all gonna beat me up or make me say some shit that I didn't do, bro? Come on, what's going on? Again, Brandon's original lawyer destroyed his case file. And I was unable to get any kind of reports on this. But Brandon says the cops beat on him, trying to get him to confess. He says he asked for a lawyer 15 times and was never given one. In the aftermath of the shooting, four people were wounded, but survived. And four people are being treated for wounds from a shooting outside a Halloween party. Devontae Smith, Thomas Ritchie, my son Downs, and Gino Hall. Brandon, with no criminal record, wound up being charged with four counts of attempted first-degree murder. The investigation was a joint task force, tried by District Attorney Antonella Nistorescu of the Hardcore Gang Division and investigated by USC's Department of Public Safety and the LAPD. At trial, Prosecutor Nistorescu laid out what she said happened that night starting with alleging that Brandon was a notorious gang member from the photos they got from his phone of him with a gun and throwing up blood gang signs. Now, I want to take a minute to talk about gangs because this is really important to Brandon's case. If you're a typical person, you're aware that there are gangs and that most of the time they're violent and dangerous. But you also have to be aware of what the label, quote, gang member means to a defendant in a criminal case in this country. Studies and analyses have shown time and again that defendants presented as gang members are treated much differently by courts than other defendants. In 2011, the City University of New York published Fear Itself, the Impact of Allegations of Gang Affiliation on Pretrial Detention. According to that study, a prosecutor simply saying someone is in a gang reduces or eliminates the possibility of release on reasonable bail, regardless of the merits of the case or the severity of charges against the defendant. Quote, this is because of the allegation that a person is affiliated with gangs evokes fear of senseless violence, end quote. It doesn't matter if the suspect has a completely clean rap sheet like Brandon. Once you label him a gang member, he's treated far more harshly from the moment he's arrested. The study also found that in most jurisdictions, substantial sentence enhancements are imposed when someone is convicted of a gang-related crime. And so that's why it matters that the prosecution's theory hinged on this supposed gang activity. So Prosecutor Nistorescu said that when Brandon got to the USC party, he saw a member of a rival gang that shot him the year earlier, Gino Hall, allegedly part of the Roland 40s Crips. The prosecution presented Twitter messages between Brandon and Hall, allegedly showing a feud fueled by gang rivalry. Now, again, I haven't seen the tweets. We don't have any of the files but Brandon says nothing was threatening. It was just them talking crap back and forth like kids do. Yeah, so the Twitter thing was, okay, we've gotten to an argument, but none of the, the, none of the Twitter stuff was violent or threatening. 
I said it's 2012 and you're still talking about game day. So that shows right there alone that I wasn't even entertaining the game um, aspect of that conversation, if that was what been had said. And then second of all, it also states where I said, um, you're a clown. Like, but that means he was a joke. You know, basically he was just mad at that time that I was doing better than him in society. But the prosecution said that when Brandon saw Hall at the party, he tried to even the score from when Hall allegedly shot him the year earlier. One of the survivors, the prosecution's star witness, LaPaul Lane, said he saw Brandon leave, return with a gun, and shoot into the crowd at Hall. Premeditated attempted murder. But all through trial, Brandon maintained his innocence, and there was no physical evidence linking him to the crime. Eventually, a gun the prosecution presented as the weapon Brandon used was found, but his fingerprints were not on the gun, and the DNA on it was inconclusive. But... Brandon's defense was pretty weak. His attorney didn't even call his alibi witness, his girlfriend who was with him at the party, to testify that Brandon wasn't the shooter. It's unclear why he didn't call her. According to Brandon, she was willing to testify. Brandon was eventually convicted of four counts of attempted murder. Before sentencing, one of the survivors said that he knew Brandon and he didn't think Brandon would do this, and asked the judge to be lenient with his sentence. A sergeant in the LAPD's 77th Division, familiar with gang activity, called Brandon a nice, respectable young man. Even the former mayor of Inglewood vouched for Brandon. I called him up. Well, I've known him since he was uh, 11 years old. He played on my Little League team, he and his brothers, and I... He's a friend of my daughter's, so I have, you know, in a sense, a relationship with him uh, as a young man growing up in my neighborhood. Do you believe in his innocence today? I I believe in his innocence today. I believed in it uh, at the time. I I didn't know Brandon as someone who would, you know, pull a gun on somebody, threaten someone's life. Uh, That wasn't the Brandon I knew growing up and, and knew as a young man who was giving, who was involved in. Uh, community service. I didn't know Brandon uh, in in the light of, of someone who would attempt to take someone's life. But on April 18th, 2014, the judge handed down the sentence. 15 years to life on four attempted murder convictions running concurrently, plus 25 years to life for gun use. Ultimately, Brandon was sentenced to 40 years to life at 21 years old, for four shots that killed no one. The video of Brandon at his sentencing went viral. During sentencing, Spencer completely broke down. The minimum period of parole eligibility is 15 years plus 25 years of life in accordance with Penal Code Section 12022.53d. This is to be concurrent with the term. 21-year-old Brandon Spencer of Inglewood bangs his head as a judge sentences him to 40 years to life after he was convicted of shooting a rival gang member at a 2012 Halloween party on the USC campus. Today, in L.A. Superior Court, Spencer begged for mercy from Judge Edmund Clark Jr. before sentencing. I'm sorry for having you on but I prison. And I'm not a bad person, but... I made mistakes, 
What were you thinking in that moment? Man, it was over. That was the worst day of my life. They're telling you, life is over. That's like like walking out there knowing I'm about to get shot in the head type stuff. Like, you know you're going to die. Like, it's over. So that's what really made me just break down. Like, wow, like, yeah. And I just felt like, I don't know, like getting shot didn't even hurt as much as that day hurt. Like, I was just like watching my own funeral type thing. Like, just, you know, 15 of life for this, 25 of life for that. I said, whoa, hold on, bro. And then I know what happened. And then nobody's trying to listen to you. Like, you know, that's like a, that's like a. I asked Brandon about that Halloween night in 2012. I mean, do you think back on that day and just, you know, replay it in your head? Like you woke up that morning and had no idea. Uh, Yes, I do. I used to every day, you know, for at least five years. Shoulda, coulda, woulda, those moments. I was living my best life to be 19 years old. I was happy. You know, I could just go wherever I wanted, go buy a burger when I want. Now I'm, I'm, I'm not able to do that. I'm confined to a small box 23 hours a day. You, you're being, you went from living your best life to being just treated like an animal. Because you're not even a human anymore. You're just a number here. A lot of people don't get that. Like you're just a number. So you're just a grocery item. I've you know, made mistakes in the past by the association that I chose to associate myself with. But over the past almost 10 years, I've grown and matured. I've continued to better myself as a man. I didn't let a dark situation define my life. I've I've tried to live every day as if it's my last because every day is truly a gift. That's why it's called the present. You know, I'm just just a a guy who's trying to get out and and live a life of purpose. And... There is new information in Brandon's case that could get him back into court. To start, I clarified a few things. Were you in the Bloods? Uh, no, but I did associate with them. But Brandon has a huge BS tattooed on his chest. And the prosecutor said it stood for the Black Peastone Gang. Bro, my name is Brandon Spencer, bro. I have BS on my chest. My name is Brandon Spencer, bro. Being a gang member does not make you a murderer, especially in the L.A. culture. This is Patty again, and she makes a good point. If you remember Jermaine's mothers from episode two, Jermaine actually admits he was in a gang, but he never killed anyone. Patty grew up in Highland Park, L.A., and corroborated what Brandon said about growing up and just knowing gang members even if you're not affiliated. You grow up in the hood, you grow up knowing gangs or members of gangs. I myself grew up knowing a lot of gang members, hanging out with gang members. Was I ever one? No. That's the LA culture, especially for a young African-American male. Growing up in Inglewood, you know, that is the root of so many gangs right there. That is the home of so many gangs right there. Um, You kind of have to know these people to get by you know it's almost impossible to get by without knowing them without affiliating yourself with them but that does not make him a murderer then there's the phone evidence alleged, alleged gang stuff just me with pictures with gang members me throwing up gang signs when i was 15 
I was 19 when I caught this case. Remember, Brandon was shot a year earlier and decided to turn his life around and go into nursing. So these are just old pictures I had in my iPhone. Now, okay, when is it a crime to take pictures? Rappers throw up gang signs all day. So, okay, but that's not a crime. And then so you're just painting this picture saying, Maggie, well, you know, black guys are gang members, so you know what gang members do, Maggie. So he could have did it, so just find him guilty. When they checked his phone, they also found photos of him at a shooting range with a gun similar to the one used in the crime. But it's important to note that Brandon was a licensed security guard and says he was practicing his shooting for work. However, the phone evidence is also questionable. Brandon's phone was illegally searched under Riley v. California. Police officers may not without a warrant search digital information on cell phones seized from individuals who have been arrested. Brandon filed an appeal when he discovered this, but his appeal was denied on a good faith exception, meaning the cops said they thought searching his phone was legal at the time, and the appellate court gave them the benefit of the doubt. But still, there are other avenues to get his case back into court. So let's say the phone evidence was illegal, and all that alleged evidence of gang activity doesn't exist, all that's left against Brandon is the witness testimony of LaPaul Lane. Lane testified that he saw Brandon leave and come back with a gun and shoot into the crowd at Hall, who the prosecution alleged that Brandon had beef with. But six years later, in 2018, LaPaul Lane recanted. In a written affidavit that I actually do have, Lane said that Detective Jones knew he was on probation at the time and threatened him with a probation violation if he didn't cooperate. Lane said he was pressured by the prosecutor and coached what to say. He said that he never saw Brandon leave and come back with a gun. And without this testimony, Brandon could not have been charged with premeditation. He also said he never saw Brandon shoot at the crowd and that he had a secret deal with the prosecution, that if he said what they wanted him to say, he would receive a significantly lighter sentence for a charge he was facing. He said the prosecution also paid him for his testimony. And so this is the evidence that could get Brandon back into court for a retrial. And if a retrial is granted, besides the information I already mentioned, I also want to bring up all the reasonable doubt in Brandon's case. Things that Patty and I find fishy. To start, the alleged murder weapon, the gun that was presented at trial, was found hours after they had already searched the parking lot. So he leaves this party, makes it to the parking lot inside his car, then he gets arrested, but there is no gun. They searched the parking lot. And uh, once he's already in the precinct, three hours later, they find a gun in the parking lot, right? So I thought we checked this already. How did it just magically appear? You know, the most compelling evidence is that there's no gunshot residue on him at all. Right, right. And that's another thing. I mean, you can get a gunshot residue on you just by entering a room after a gun's been shot. However, if you shoot the gun, you are going to be filled on gunshot residue, right? GSR is going to be all over you. You're going to, there's no denying it. And he got tested for it, but there was none found on him. Brandon also points out that if Gino Hall was allegedly the person who shot Brandon a year earlier, why was he never charged for that shooting? The case rested on this alleged gang feud and Brandon seeking revenge. You're saying these are the same guys who shot me. Well, where's my justice? 
It seems worth noting, by the way, that this whole Gino Hall shot Brandon a year earlier theory is contradictory to what is stated in the phone search appellate opinion. It doesn't say that Brandon knew Hall and that's why the shooting happened. Actually, it says Brandon approached Hall and asked him where he was from, like he didn't know the guy. Hall also did not identify Brandon as the shooter. So did Brandon and Hall know each other, as the prosecution alleged in trial, or did they not, as the appellate opinion from the court states? See how I got railroaded here? So if Brandon was railroaded, why? So at the time at USC, when this happened, a couple of months prior, there had been a shooting and a a killing of two Chinese students at USC. Two Chinese students were murdered in an apparent robbery just off campus. Mingqiu and Yingwu were foreign students shot to death while sitting in their parked BMW outside of the USC campus. It was major news particularly because USC is a prestigious private school and was the top school 13 years in a row for recruiting foreign students like Ming and Ying. In order to get so many foreigners to come, USC had to boast safety along with their academic program. But USC is located in South Central LA, which we talked about, and it's in a historically low-income, high-crime community unbeknownst to many unfamiliar with the city. After the murders, the parents of both Ming and Ying filed lawsuits against USC for misrepresenting safety and security on campus. And the shooting Brandon was pinned for took place just months after Ming and Ying were murdered. And USC now had two shooting incidents to deal with in a span of months. They needed to make sure that there was not another scandal, another shooting. They needed to ensure that you know, the the investors of USC, if you will, would not have this come out to light and have USC seem like it was an unsafe place. So they needed to kind of open an uh, open and shut case. And that's when they just kind of got Brandon as a scapegoat. After trial, Brandon's dad told LA Weekly that he has no doubt USC, a wealthy, influential employer in the area, put pressure on police to close the case fast. He said, quote, I wouldn't trust the police officers and detectives, prosecutors and judges to save my life because they are the biggest notorious gang members. We allow these people to send our children to prison under the pressure from USC. Brandon's dad also told the L.A. Sentinel he blamed racism for what happened to Brandon. This whole gang notion and that prosecutors and USC officials were trying to railroad his son. He said, quote, they wanted to keep all these Black men off the USC campus, end quote. And USC has faced allegations of racism in the past. Most recently, there's a petition up urging the school to address anti-Blackness on campus. Despite the school being located in a predominantly Black neighborhood, the school is a majority white and Asian. Only 3% is Black. With all this Black Lives Matter going on right now, this is, this is a key case. Uh, pure um, prejudice, discrimination, systemic racism in a criminal justice system because it's like there was no proof, no evidence or any facts to say that I committed this crime. And now I just lost 10 years of my life for what? Like, I lost everything, bro. I lost everything. I'm not trying to seem like, you know, 
I'm just perfect patty. You know, like I said, I've made mistakes in my life, but don't just railroad me, In many of the cases I've covered, there is a repeated pattern of disposability. Just another black kid or poor kid that no one cares about who we can use to close the case and make ourselves look good. Brandon and I talked a lot about his time in prison. So, you know, I've been just really in here by myself and trying to uh, make the best out of the situation and try to continue to build and better myself as a man the best way possible. But I'm just sitting in a, I'm sitting in an actual hell on earth, you know? This place is designed to psychologically break you. Like, that's, that's its sole purpose. There is no such thing as rehabilitation. Yeah, there's no such thing as rehabilitation. And, and the criminal justice system is not designed, it's not designed for persons, especially of African-American descent. And, and I believe it truly goes back to the United States Supreme Court precedent in Plessy versus Ferguson, where it said a slave has no human rights. And, and honestly, you know, no matter how much people try to go around it, you know, I'm an ancestor of a slave. So that means if, if they didn't have no rights, since when did I get some? Brandon is clearly incredibly intelligent and driven. So I asked if he ever thought about wrongful convictions before he was arrested. I honestly kind of got more involved in the criminal justice system after being incarcerated now. I never, and I'm not going to lie, I honestly didn't care. Like a lot of people who probably listen to the podcast, who cares, you know? But now I'm seeing like, whoa, like they're railroading a lot of people. And this, is, and this is clearly unjust. And I know I always speak with wrongfully incarcerated prisoners about how they still have so many good years left because it is true. Look at Ronnie Long planning a cross-country road trip, which I spoke to Ashley about. But at 28, Brandon truly does have his entire life ahead of him. So you wanted to do nursing before. Now what do you want to do? Now, honestly, I want to give back the best way possible. I wanna I wanna help the at-risk youth. I wanna help, like, honestly, my generation is done for. A lot of my generation is kinda like, so caught up in this fake lifestyle and all that. And they, and they, and they per, like portray this place as something cool. You know what I'm saying? And this is not somewhere that people should come and um, hang out. This is not a, this is not Disneyland. This isn't, this is really a waste of life. Like, you can educate yourself and better yourself here. But I feel like, yes, for me, it's helped me find my purpose and, and better myself as a man. But I just want to really help youth deter, deter them from this lifestyle, enter, entertaining anything of this nature or magnitude, but at the same time, also help correct the system. Because the system is what is throwing us away and, 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 and rig not in our favor. Because I've, I've, I've read about the 13th Amendment and things like that. And, and, and honestly, Mag, if I ever get a chance to become free, like they really need to change that in the Constitution. And that's why I really want to change. I really want to change the system. Like if, I, if I'm able to have my voice heard, I want to be in a position to where I can help change the justice, the criminal justice system of America. Brandon has a hearing at the end of February for the additional 25 years to life for gun use. Based on new rulings, the enhancement could be removed, and then Brandon would only be facing the 15 years for attempted murder, nine of which he's already served. So he could be looking at parole within six years. 
But still, that's six more years that if he's innocent, he shouldn't have to serve. So I've been speaking with Marty Tankleff, who you're familiar with from episode 13, an exoneree who is now a lawyer, to see if he can help out going forward. Brandon, Marty, Patty, and I are all in communication about next steps. If you want to help Brandon, there is a change.org petition with close to 10,000 signatures. Please sign and share, as well as following his social media and sharing his story. You can also write him and show your support that way. You can find links to all of this on our website, unjustandunsolved.com. If you want to support the work I'm doing, please, please rate and review and share this show. It takes two seconds and the payoff is huge. The more people who hear and share, the more reviews, the more attention, and the more likely word about these wrongful convictions will reach the right people. Unjust and Unsolved is produced and reported by me, Maggie Freeling, with editorial consulting from Amber Hunt. For more information and resources, go to unjustandunsolved.com. You can find Unjust and Unsolved on Twitter and Instagram at Unjust Unsolved and join the discussion on Facebook at Unjust and Unsolved Podcast Discussion Group. Unjust and Unsolved is a production of the Obsessed Network. You can find all their shows at obsessednetwork.com.